Take your Bible and open it to John chapter 12. We're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday in verse 12, John 12, 12 through verse 19. While you're turning there, let me ask, how many of you love parades? I absolutely love parades. For thousands of years, there have been parades. The Romans would celebrate military victories with a parade. It seems like forever, Olympic athletes have begun their ceremonies with a parade. We think about famous parades here like the Macy's Parade on Thanksgiving or the Rose Bowl Parade on New Year's. I've marched in parades. There have been numerous parades here in Homestead. But I found out that the largest parade in the world happens once a year. It's called the Hanover Schützenfest in Germany. And get this, it's seven and a half miles long. It has 12,000 participants, more than one hundred marching bands, uh, over 70 floats, over a million people line up to see it live. Man, that's a lot of people showing up to see some in giant inflatable big bird. Uh, I bet it's quite a sight to behold. But this morning, I want to talk to you about a parade that leaves all of those others behind. It actually took place 2,000 years ago, and there were no marching bands marching, and there were no floats that were floating. In fact, there was just one animal and one rider, and the whole thing only took a few minutes. Well, if you haven't figured it out, I'm talking about what happened when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, riding on a donkey. But this was not just another parade. This parade was prophesied in the Word of God. And this parade actually had eternal significance. In this parade, Jesus, the Son of God, was showing up to take on sin and death The scene for this parade is the Passover before Jesus died. And by the way, it's really interesting, even though we are only halfway through our study of the Gospel of John, we've already arrived at the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. The rest of John's Gospel focuses on this brief amount of time But Jesus came knowing that soon he would be betrayed and arrested, tried, condemned, and crucified. He came to Jerusalem that day knowing that the weight of the sin of the world would soon be put on his shoulders, that soon he would endure the Father's wrath for sin. And so when Jesus entered Jerusalem in John chapter 12... He was saying yes to all of the above. He was walking the plank, so to speak. 
He was willing to endure all of that for you and for me. And as we read this story and as we think about this image of Jesus coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, there are several things about this story uh, that teaches some things about Jesus, three lessons in particular that I want us to learn. And first of all, we're going to see the humility Jesus displayed. The humility Jesus displayed. Now look at verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, notice that John says that it was the next day. In verse 1, when Jesus enjoyed that dinner that we talked about last week, we're told it was six days before the Passover. So now it's five days before the Passover. Well, why is that significant? It's significant because this is the day, this was the time when the people selected their Passover lamb. At the Passover, everyone sacrificed a lamb. This was not the day that they sacrificed it, but this was the day that they selected it because that lamb actually would live with them for several days so that they had time to inspect it, to make sure that it didn't have some blemish they hadn't noticed before, to make sure that it didn't have some sickness. It had to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. And notice what Jesus does. He intentionally chose this day when everyone would select their Passover lamb as the day that he would enter Jerusalem. I mean, just picture this. You've got thousands of people coming to Jerusalem for Passover, and many of them were bringing lambs with them. If you could have been there, you would have seen lambs everywhere. Jesus came, and he brought himself because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you already have thousands of people coming into Jerusalem. Verse 12 says that a great multitude came out when they heard that Jesus was coming. Now let me remind you of the context here, something we saw back when we were in chapter 11. At the end of the chapter, as the people were arriving in Jerusalem for the Passover, the Bible tells us there was one big topic of conversation, one thing everybody in town was talking about, will he or won't he? Will Jesus come? Will he dare to show his face knowing that some very powerful people have vowed to kill him? If he does, will he come or won't he and when they heard that, yes, Jesus was coming, that indeed he's on his way, they rushed out to meet him. And in verse 13, this great multitude took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. I will talk in a moment about what it is they were crying out, but what is happening here? What is Jesus doing? Jesus is 
setting off the events that he knows will result in his death on the cross. Now, how does he do it? He does this by allowing something that he had never allowed before. By accepting the public praise of the people and by allowing them to openly, publicly, boldly identify him as the Messiah. You see, until now, every time someone wanted to do this, Jesus stopped them. He told them to stay quiet, so much so that back in chapter 10, some of the Jews got frustrated with Jesus, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, how long will you keep us in doubt? Well, guess what? It doesn't get any more plain than this. He is doing something right here, something that everybody knew that the Messiah and only the Messiah would do. He's allowing the people to publicly declare that he is the Messiah. And when Jesus did that, let me tell you, it was like lighting a match and dropping it into a barrel full of gunpowder. He knew what he was doing, and he knew what would happen. He knew where this would lead. But notice how Jesus entered Jerusalem in verse 14. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. Everything about this denotes humility. You know that any Roman soldier or any Roman centurion who had been there that day watching Jesus ride into Jerusalem on that donkey, hearing the people say, the king of Israel, you realize they would have laughed. They would have seen that and said, this is your king. Are you kidding me? This doesn't look like a king, how a king would come into a city. Last Sunday night, in our study of the Song of Solomon, we read about how King Solomon came to the village when he came for the Shulamite woman, and he came in a royal procession in a majestic chariot with a palanquin that was made of the finest woods and that was adorned in gold and silver. He came, King Solomon came, surrounded by mighty men marching beside him with their swords drawn. Everything about it just shouted royalty. And yet here is King Jesus, a much greater king, an infinitely greater king than Solomon. And yet he comes not riding in a chariot, not even on a beautiful war horse, he came not surrounded by soldiers marching in formation. He came on a donkey, a young donkey, we are told, the cult of a donkey, so small that more than likely his feet could drag the ground as he was seated upon it. Can you picture this? Why does Jesus, the king of kings, come this way? He came this way because Jesus did not come to exalt himself, but to humble himself. He didn't come to promote himself. He came to lower himself. He said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. 
the one who is worthy of more glory and more honor than anyone, he humbled himself, and we see that even in the way that he rode into Jerusalem. Now, here's the big question. How do we apply this to our lives? How do we put this into practice? Well, the apostle Paul was thinking about this very thing when he wrote his letter to the Philippians. And I want you to just listen to what Paul said about this, how we can take this image of Jesus lowering himself, humbling himself, and put it into practice in our lives. Philippians 2 verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he did what? Humbled himself. Say that again. Humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus humbled himself when he came from heaven to earth. He humbled himself when he rode into Jerusalem riding on a colt in order to then lay down his life and die upon a cross. And just as Jesus humbled himself in this way, Paul said that for us as believers, this becomes a way of life for us. This becomes the way we are to treat others, the way that we are to interact with others. We humble ourselves by considering others better than us. He said we humble ourselves by putting the needs of others before our own needs. We humble ourselves when we love our enemies. We humble ourselves when we suffer wrong patiently. We humble ourselves sometimes by submitting to authority. Sometimes we humble ourselves by being willing to receive correction. We are to humble ourselves continually in our homes, in our marriages, in our schools, in the workplace, our business, in our church. In fact, I'll even go so far as to say this. There will never be a time in your life where you will be called upon to humble yourself more than Jesus did in John chapter 12. Not one time. No matter how low you have to stoop, you'll never humble yourself more than Jesus did here. And we are now called to follow his example. We see the humility that Jesus displayed. And we also see here the scripture Jesus fulfilled. The scripture Jesus fulfilled. Look at the end of verse 14, going into verse 15. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's cult. 
Now, notice those words. As it is written, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Everything he did was consistent with the word of God, never in opposition to the word of God. And in this case, John quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Five centuries before Jesus was born, the prophet Zechariah wrote, and he prophesied that one day this unusual event would take place. He prophesied that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. He prophesied that there would be singing and shouting and rejoicing. He even prophesied that he would enter sitting on the cult of a donkey. We come to John chapter 12, and here's Jesus. John doesn't bother to tell us the story about how Jesus obtained this cult because that story is already told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. No, John is focused on one thing. He is focused on the fact that when Jesus sat on that cult, in that moment, he did so not because he was tired, not because his feet hurt, not because he needed to take a break and sit down. No, in that moment, Jesus sat down and he was fulfilling prophecy because the scripture said that this is what the Messiah will do. Jesus had to do everything the Scripture said the Messiah would do. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, as he tells this story, there is a rather humorous detail that he includes. He says that as the people are singing and as they are shouting, they did so so loudly that the Pharisees got a little bit upset about that. Of course, they were always upset over something. But the Pharisees come to Jesus and they said, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. This is getting out of hand. And you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, if they keep silent, the rocks will cry out. That's a statement that oftentimes is misinterpreted. Sometimes you'll hear a preacher or a teacher preaching on this passage, and they will say that Jesus is so worthy of praise, we must praise him, and if we don't praise him, then that means the rocks will have to cry out. And yes, that sounds good. Jesus is worthy of our praise. His praise should always be on our lips, and I don't ever want a rock to have to take my place. That's true, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus said, if they keep silent, the rocks will cry out, it wasn't because he thought that his praise might come to an end. No, he said that. He said the rocks will cry out because Jesus understood that in that very moment, Scripture was being fulfilled, that Zechariah had prophesied and said that at that very moment, Jesus would be praised and Jesus believed that if rocks had to cry out, and I do mean rocks literally crying out, that if that had to happen in order for Scripture to be fulfilled, well, that is exactly what would happen. That is how strong is the Word of God according to Jesus. According to Jesus, there's a greater likelihood of rocks 
singing than there is of one prophecy failing. There's a greater chance of a stone in your yard singing Rock of Ages cleft for me than just one word of God's word being mistaken or that one promise would fail. Now, that's how Jesus approached the scriptures. And if he approached the scriptures that way, we should approach the scriptures that way as well. That is why, in that moment, Jesus had to sit down on that cult. Now, look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. I'll tell you what the first thing is that I think of when I read verse 16. I read that verse and I think, well, that's embarrassing. Jesus' own followers didn't know the scriptures well enough to see what was happening, to know what was happening, that's embarrassing. John says they didn't understand it at the time, but they came to understand it later on, after Jesus died, after he rose again. They were able to look back, and eventually it all made sense. They put it all together. Now, that may be embarrassing, but to me, it's also very encouraging. It's encouraging because even though the disciples had spent all this time with Jesus... They didn't get it, and guess what? Many times, neither do I. I can't tell you how many times I have read something in the Word of God, and it just did not make sense to me at that time, but then sometime later, and sometimes years later, it all clicks. And I look back, and suddenly it makes sense. And so be encouraged It's okay if you don't understand everything you read the first time you read it. It took time for the disciples to get it. It's okay if it takes time for us to get it as well. But eventually they did get it. And they understood that in that moment, Jesus was fulfilling Scripture. He was fulfilling prophecy. We see in this story the humility Jesus displayed. We see in this story the scripture Jesus fulfilled. We also see in this story the salvation Jesus brings. The salvation Jesus brings. Now, before we go back to verse 13, it turns out there's another reason why the scripture said that when the Messiah came into Jerusalem, he would come riding on the cult of a donkey. You see, there's something that is very, very symbolic here. In the Old Testament, under the law, in Exodus 34, I'm not going to read it now, you can read it later, but according to the law, God told the Israelites that the firstborn male of all of their livestock was to be offered to the Lord and sacrificed. They were to sacrifice the firstborn male of every creature they possessed as a way of acknowledging that God owns it all. But did you know, in that same law, God made one exception. It seems kind of like a very strange exception. Donkeys were not included. I mean... If you were going to be an animal back in Bible days, donkey was kind of the way to go. 
God told them, you will not sacrifice the firstborn male donkey. No, instead, a lamb will be sacrificed in its place. It's interesting because in Matthew's gospel, we're told that the cult and its mother walked along that road into Jerusalem, and that tells us that almost certainly this cult upon which Jesus rode would have been the firstborn. Do you understand what this means? The animal that Jesus mounted, the animal that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem that day would never be sacrificed because a lamb was already sacrificed for him. You see the imagery here? This donkey, this colt, the only reason why he is alive is because a lamb had died for him. And, don't want to bruise your ego, but there's a sense in which we are like that donkey. We can have life because Jesus The Lamb of God died for us. The symbolism doesn't stop there. You know, Mark's gospel tells us that this was a cult that had never been ridden before. In other words, this cult was unbroken. Now, there's one thing you don't want to do, unless this is your job and you're trained. You you probably don't want to ride an unbroken, broken donkey. When I was 12 years old, my father had the horrible idea of buying a Shetland pony. Uh, We had moved out into the country, and uh, he thought, well, this would be a great idea. And so one day, my dad brought home an unbroken pony. I believe it was possessed with a demon Because it was always trying to kick me and bite me. It was a day of great rejoicing when we got rid of that thing. Because it was unbroken. It was wild. And we didn't know how to break it. So here's this unbroken donkey. It's never been ridden before by anybody They bring it to Jesus, and what does he do? He gets on it, and suddenly, just like that, the unbroken became broken. Just like that, the wild became tame. Isn't that a picture, a beautiful picture of what Jesus will do in a man or a woman's life? The sinner is unbroken, wild, destructive, rebellious, cruel, And then Jesus gets on board. And the unbroken becomes broken. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things are made new. And all of a sudden, that man or woman who had no self-control, God begins to produce self-control. All of a sudden, that man or that woman who knows nothing but turmoil, they begin to have peace. And all of a sudden, that hatred that they possessed is replaced with love. And all of a sudden, that cruelty is replaced with kindness. And the unbroken becomes gloriously broken. 
What Jesus did for that cult, he did for me. And what Jesus did for that cult, he is still doing in the lives of men and women today. Verse 13 says, as as Jesus is riding that cult, the people, they're singing and they're shouting. But I want you to notice they were singing a very specific song. Go back to verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, the song that they were singing is Psalm 118. This is a song of praise, praising God for bringing Israel out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land. Now they're singing it for Jesus, who came to bring us out of bondage of sin and into the promised land of salvation and eternal life. For centuries, the Jews would sing this song as they entered Jerusalem, and they would sing to one another, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as if they were talking about themselves. But now they take that song and they're singing it for Jesus. Blessed is he who is himself the Lord. And I want you to notice this word that they are singing at the very beginning, that word, Hosanna. Isn't that a churchy kind of word? We sing it a lot. We hear it a lot in church. How many believers have repeated that word again and again? Hosanna! Without even understanding what the word means. What does that word mean? Hosanna. What are they saying to Jesus In this moment, that word Hosanna simply means save us now. That's it. Save us now. So, can can you hear it? Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. As he's approaching, you can hear a sound in the distance, some kind of chant, some kind of cry. It gets louder and louder. At first, you can't quite make out what they are saying, but then as you get closer... It makes sense. You can make it out. And here is what they are saying and what they are singing to Jesus as he comes in, riding on a donkey. They're saying, save us now. Save us now. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. The people were crying out to Jesus to save them. And when you read it, at first, it sounds good. That's great. They're asking Jesus to save them. It turns out there was just one problem. When they said, save us now, it's because they wanted Jesus to save them from the Romans right now. You see... They wanted a political savior, not a spiritual savior. I'm going to say something that might upset some folks, but I'm going to say it because I think it needs to be said. As important as politics are, and praise God for godly people who enter that arena, the Bible says when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, praise the Lord. As important as politics are, Political solutions will never solve spiritual problems. Ever. 
And I believe that much of what we're seeing today goes to the heart. These are spiritual problems and therefore require spiritual solutions. It's going to have to mean revival in the church and spiritual awakening in the land because political solutions cannot solve spiritual problems. Jesus did not come to save them from the Romans. He came to save them and us from our sin. And that's what they did not understand. And that is why so many of them became quickly disappointed in Jesus. And in case you've ever wondered, this is how so many of them go from singing Save us now, Hosanna, one day to crucify him shortly thereafter. Look at verse 17. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Can you hear the frustration in their voice? The world has gone after him. Oh, we wish that were true. We understand that they were upset and they were exaggerating. We wish the whole world would go after Jesus. That hasn't happened yet. It's our job to make sure the whole world knows so that whosoever will can go after Jesus, can follow Jesus. But John reminds us of something. He tells us something here that none of the other gospel writers tell us when they are giving us this story. He reminds us that the people who came to greet Jesus as he entered Jerusalem were there because they knew that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's what really fueled the size of the crowd and the intensity of the crowd that met him when he came into Jerusalem because they knew that this is the man who had raised from the dead Lazarus, a man we know to have died, to have been buried, and for four days was in that tomb, but then Jesus raised him from the dead. Now, I believe that John emphasizes this one detail in order to expose their guilt when some of these turned on Jesus just a few days later. The fact that they would acknowledge him as their Messiah and King and then crucify him anyway. What a picture of human depravity. We've seen this story and we've seen how Jesus humbled himself. And so then the question becomes for us, are we willing to humble ourselves? Will we humble ourselves admitting that we are sinners, admitting that we fall short and confessing Jesus as Lord? Will we humble ourselves in the way we treat others and act towards others? We've seen how Jesus fulfilled Scripture, and because he fulfilled the Scripture, he is everything that he claimed to be, the Son of God who died, who rose again, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The question is, will we place our faith in him? We've seen the salvation that he brings. 
He offers that salvation to every man, woman, boy, and girl. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the question is, will you accept that gift? Would you join me for a moment as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. And we thank you for everything that it means We thank you for the way Jesus was willing to humble himself for us. That even though he was and he is the king of kings, the king of glory, to think that he would ride into Jerusalem the cult of a donkey. And just as Jesus humbled himself all the way to the cross, God, how we pray, you would help us to follow his example and to live this out I pray for those who perhaps are here today who need to humble themselves and acknowledging their lost condition, acknowledging their need for a Savior, their need for Jesus. But God, would you help all of us to follow his example and humble ourselves, not just at that initial point of salvation, but as a way of life. We thank you for the fact that Jesus came and he, he was everything and he did everything the Scriptures said he would be and everything they, the Scriptures said he would do. And therefore, God, we can trust him and we can trust your word. We can trust every single promise that you give us knowing that not one word can or will ever fail. And so help us, O oh Lord, to truly cling to your word and to trust in your promises. We thank you, O God, for this glorious salvation, this so great salvation that Jesus and only Jesus could bring. Father, we pray if there's anyone here today who has never accepted this gift, that this would be the day and that you would give all of us the grace and the strength to be able to leave this place and proclaim it so that what the Pharisees said in frustration could actually be said that the whole world has gone after Jesus because he is worthy. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Has bowed, eyes still closed for just a moment. I can't leave you without asking that question once again. Where are you in all of this? Has there been that moment, that time when you humbled yourself, acknowledging that you need to be saved, acknowledging that you are a sinner Has there been that time where you placed your faith in Christ, believing that he is, and he did everything the scripture said, that he died for your sin and he rose again on the third day? Have you received this gift of salvation that he brings? Like any other gift, you can accept it or you can reject it. What is your response to Jesus? Has there been that time where you accepted this gift by saying, I confess him as my Lord, I will follow Christ. Anybody here today that would say, Pastor, that's me. I need to take that step. I've never done that before, but that's me. That's who I am. That's where I am. And today I want to follow Christ for the very first time. Anybody that would say, Pastor, pray for me. That's me. That's who I am. That's where I am this morning. Just by raising a hand so I can know and be praying for you. If you're watching online, I want to hear from you as well. Please, I can't see you raise your hand, but would you Reach out to us, that number that I shared earlier, that number that's on the screen. Please uh, send us a text message and give us your name. Uh, Let us know that step of faith you're taking. Let us know that question that you have. 
If you want to know more, reach out to us. Let us know so that we can follow up with you as well. And at the end of the service, if I can pray for you, if I can minister to you, I'll be right here at the front in order to do that. I love greeting people, but I'm not just here to greet people. I'm here to, uh, to pray for you and to minister and to answer any questions you have. Make an appointment if you want, and we'll just continue the conversation. Amen?